Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of January 2022. Been quite a change in the weather over the past couple of weeks. Last weekend, we saw record-setting rainfall for the dates on both Friday and Saturday here in Sitka. On Friday, we had over four inches of rain and Saturday, two and a half inches of rain. Uh, Did a wonder on melting the snow and ice from around town. Although I do notice out the roads, it's still a little more persistent snow. I guess it fell more deeply there to begin with, perhaps, and then was a little cooler and so didn't hasn't melted off quite as fast. It did take us from being below average, a dry start to the year uh, and the month, and moved us into the well above average territory. Since then, it's been much more of a wet pattern than it was at the beginning of the year. Kind of not unexpected for wintertime here in Sitka. It is the time of winter when, for me, I just start to look at the things that are just starting to move. We're getting more daylight. It seems like some of the waterfowl start to move around a little bit more. Um, But well before the full-on migration season, it's just kind of looking for those hints of spring to come that I enjoy doing out there. While it's not a time of year I expect to see new birds, it has been fun to observe the less typical wintering birds here this year. There's been a couple of shrikes here in Sitka. Often we don't see any in a winter, so that's been fun. Also, thick-billed murres have been showing up in Silver Bay. Not so easy to see, but with spotting scope from the side of the road, we can kind of pick those out. They're normally much more difficult to see as they tend to go out more offshore to feed than the common murres. If you're seeing anything out there, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded yesterday with my son, Connor. It's been about a year since he last was on here, so I thought it'd be fun to check in with him and his activities. We'll go ahead and start with him talking a little bit about his trail cam setups. I've had five or six put out this year in different places. Some watching muskegs, others watching creeks and bare rub trees and... Any highlights of things that you've you've found? Uh, yeah, I got some videos of screech owls uh, on a few different occasions. Um, I got videos of Martin running back and forth. I've gotten videos of mink as well. Um, I didn't really get too many videos of bears this year, although that might have had something to do with the fact that the rub tree I had my camera when my camera's set up on. Turns out I had it turned off for a month and a half, about the busiest month and a half on that rub tree, according to last year. So that was unfortunate, but that's how it goes sometimes. Um, And I got a video of a couple of bucks, just kind of button heads. Um, But my camera battery was getting low, so the videos weren't that long, unfortunately. Were you intending... To, were you targeting some of the smaller mammals that you saw? Um, I wasn't necessarily targeting them specifically. I was putting it out in places I hoped that they'd go by. But in, like one of the places I got Martin the most was across. Was I set it up on a log that was going across a creek, and, um, and I was hoping to see what I could because I've seen videos like that on YouTube and stuff before from other places where people have cameras set up on logs going across creeks and stuff and they get some interesting things and so I thought well I'd set mine up on a log and see what I could get and I managed to get Martin run back and forth a few times um, 
And I found it interesting that bears will walk across the top of the logs rather than walking down through the creek sometimes, um, and deer will as well. But Do you walk across the logs instead of through the creek? Yeah, but I don't live up there. I see. <laughs> I like to keep my feet dry. I see. Well, maybe they do too, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it seems like they must if they're walking across the logs. I don't know, though. But So the how do you decide where to put a trail cam out? Um, I look for a couple of things or three things mainly where if there's a good, is there a good place to tie it to, like a tree? I normally use a tree, but if there's some other good, like, root water or something, I'd put it on that as well. Um, is there going to be very much vegetation that's going to trigger it in high winds? Because last year there was many times where I had one had a camera set up in an area and there was a lot of vegetation and we'd get a big windstorm that'd come through and half the SD card would just be full of wind videos and so that's just kind of irritating to, or annoying to go through and potentially miss some other interesting videos as a result because the camera fills up faster. So I look for places that don't have a lot of stuff that I think will trigger the camera during high winds. Um, and then I just look for spots that I think animals will be moving through. If it's a bear sign, bear rub tree, I'll look for I'll look for one that seems to be used a fair bit and then's got a convenient. Um, tree to put it on nearby that'll be close enough to get it catch the videos and I look for try to set them on trails rather than just out in the middle of open space to see what I can to have the best chance of getting stuff my guess is you were not targeting screech owls no I was not I was hoping I like I part of me was hoping to get screech owls but I was not targeting screech owls that is true what on what basis would you sort of expect to to see them at all um by accident <laughs> oh you just that maybe you get a flyby or something. yeah that's what i was hoping for was maybe i just get one to fly by because i've also seen videos where people have gotten owls just i saw apparently barred owls will go fishing hmm. i saw videos from a person down in florida that does them and so it'll he get videos of like cougars and stuff but also barred owls um He'll set them up on water ponds that's got fish in them and stuff, and the bardellas will come and get the fish out of the ponds. And so, I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I watched the video. But so, your part of your inspiration and learning around this has been to watch. I imagine there's a lot of folks that like to post their videos online and talk about what they do for trail cams. Yeah, um, some seem to do it. There's different ways people post them up there. Some of them will just put on like 30 minutes, 40 minute videos of a compilation of several months. Others will do more talking in it and post them a little shorter. But have any recommendations for folks if they're interested in trying out trail cams? Um, not well, not especially. It's just get a trail camera and go stick it in a spot that looks interesting to you. You want to see what well, what kind of trail cams are helpful? I mean, not um, necessarily brands, but like what should people be looking for? I look for ones that have a decent, like I prefer to do my set mine as videos and not pictures. So I look for cameras with fairly good, with fairly high quality video um, and ones that have a fairly good review 
like I try to get at least four stars um, of like at least 50 people, 40, 50 people. Um, and then I'll also look and look for videos online of that kind of camera to see because sometimes they'll advertise it as one thing, but you actually get it and it's not as good as they advertise it. So I want to get, um, so I want to try to get cameras that go check out videos from those cameras so I can actually see what they're like and decide if that's actually good enough quality that I want or if it's, or if I want to look for a different one. And how do you, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about how you made some decisions, but um, have you struck out at places? Is there, I mean, like, what's your sort of check frequency and, and how are you, are, are you moving them around or has every, every time you placed one been a fantastic place and you've not had any, uh, any uh, gut skunked at all? I've never gotten, I've never set one up in a spot where I haven't at least gotten a deer. But I have set them up in places, there's some places that proved to be a lot more productive than others. Um, like I had one set up over a creek and that was by far the most productive spot I've had so far that I've been able to find. And then I had one set up in a musk, overlooking a muskeg pond, not even, it might have been uh, three quarters of a mile away. And I did not get very much on it. I mean, I got a couple bears and some deer, but and an owl a couple of times, but that was pretty much it. Um, mm. And how often are you checking them? Mm, I'm checking them uh, about once. Well, it depends on my. Partly depends on my schedule. It's been over. It's been over a month since I checked them last time. I've only got a couple out though, but. Um, but in the summertime and stuff, if I've got time, I'll go check them like and to, to once a month, maybe once every two months or something like that. I won't leave them because where I have them set up, it's easy enough for me to get to. So it's not like I, it takes me a lot of effort to get to them. So if I got time, I'll go do it. But mm. And have you noticed seasonal differences or have you not been doing it quite long enough to start to get a feel for how things are moving differently in the seasons. Presumably in the winter, there's not so many bears. Yeah, I noticed that there was, um, I got videos of a bear up until this end of December um, on one of my cameras. And um, something that I found interesting was that it was on the camera that overlooked the creek. I hardly ever got a video of a bear that, like I got one video of I think the same bear on a camera that was on a bear trail that was only probably maybe half a mile away. Um, and it was just interesting that the bear in December, just like in November, just used the creek, seemed to walk up and down the creek at night, going back and forth. And I'd see the tracks in the snow when I'd go up there in the snow. Um, but then eventually it um, it went away and I stopped seeing it. But I also noticed that deer um, in the summertime... Deer use that creek bed quite a bit. Um, Like, I got lots of videos of deer moving back and forth across that creek bed. And then hunting season started, and I got, like, no videos of deer moving back and forth across that creek bed until it snowed a lot, until we got our big snow, and then the deer started moving through the creek bed again. But When you say across, are you meaning, like, literally they're crossing it or moving up and down? They'll... I got quite a few videos of them just walking up the creek and down the creek and then also crossing, going back and forth across. I got 
videos of does and fawns going back and forth, jumping logs. Um, another interesting thing I noticed was that having the cameras up there, I was looking at one of my older, one of my summer videos, and I didn't, like, when going up there, I didn't realize how far up the creek had come. But in, like, some of my summer videos, there's, like, hardly a trickle, or there's just a trickle in there. And then I'd check some of my other ones, and it's, like, it's almost running over the log that they're going to cross. And so it was interesting to see the difference in water level hmm. at different times. And when it was deep snow, I mean, what, why do you think they went back to the creek? Mm, I think they might have gone back to the creek because it's easier walking than trudging through the deep snow. And they might have felt... I don't know. There might have been less hunting pressure on them up there at that time. I'm not entirely sure why they went back to the creek later um, after it snowed a lot versus earlier in the year. Um, yeah, I imagine Imagine if the snow is deep, it's easier to travel in, in water even though it's cold yeah. maybe, but the snow's not exactly warm. Yeah. And I, But I am curious why they would stop using it during hunting season because your cameras are recording at night too, right? So they're yeah. active at the nighttime. Yeah, I get I got a few occasionally at night, but I think part of it's just they don't... They change their habits when people when they get a lot of hunting pressure um i i got quite a few i got almost no videos of deer during the day up there during hunting season or the vast majority of hunting season up until we got a lot of snow then i got a bit more videos but um up until we got a lot of snow i hardly got any videos during daytime something i have noticed before is that the deer don't Always, sometimes they don't change what time they move. It just happens to be that the time that they move in the summertime, it's daylight. And the time that they move in the wintertime, it's dark. So it's like deer will move at 4, 5, 6 in the morning. In the summertime, it's plenty light out then. But in the wintertime, when it's hunting season, it's not so light out then. And so that I noticed that that happens sometimes. Um, but I think also sometimes they just experience a lot of hunting pressure, and so they get pushed around into different places that they would they go they change where they go and stuff so that they don't get got so many times well my other thing i guess that that i wonder about is i mean it seems like it's my understanding that they would probably change certainly the males change behavior during the rut which is not quite you know so hunting season starts before the rut and and did so did you notice the changes like as soon as hunting season started or i guess doe season starts later and then rut starts even after that or yeah i noticed more it was an interesting thing last year i had cameras set up in some of the same places and it was like i was getting i was getting does on my cameras in august i wasn't getting any bucks but i was getting does in august and i was like all right Come September 15th when does opens, I'm going up there. I did not get a doe video. I got, like, I was getting doe videos, like, at least once a day or once every other day. And then doe se- like, the day the doe season started, I got no videos for a week of any deer up there. <laughs> and so, and then when I did get them, it wasn't very often. It'd be occasional. And so it was like, man, they figure out what day it is real close and just stop showing up. Well... I mean, it's interesting because your trail cam is not, I mean, it's not a, a per, they're not avoiding it specifically, right? Yeah. So it's not, it's no threat to them, but uh, it does make me wonder, it's not like they 
disappear. So they no. got to be somewhere. So it makes me curious, like, where. And I guess that brings up, do you have trail cams set up in a way that you can start to track movement? Like, you'll see one show up on one camera, and then a little bit later, you know, down the trail or up the valley or wherever that that you see see the same animal show up again? Uh, yeah, I've I don't get that very often that I know for sure. Um, I've got it with bucks a couple of times, but even them, not very often. I, it's, I know it can be, I know people have that happen. I have not personally had that happen. Like I'll get bucks that'll go back and forth, but in front of the same camera, but I won't necessarily, there's also not very many bucks up there that I feel like I can identify, um, for sure moving around up there that are obvious enough that because a lot of them are forked horns and so they're just forked horns of slightly different sizes and sometimes they look about the same size and it's hard to tell Um, so you have plans to more thoroughly blanket the area and uh have have a whole network of of uh trail camps so you can figure out all the movements or (laughs) yeah i might try to start acquiring a couple more i might try to get a couple more trail cameras this year to put out um put out in different spots and spread out my web of cameras up there so I can get a little better coverage and get a better idea of what they're doing uh, and just see what else is moving around up there. I guess the other thing that you could do is is develop and hone your, your tracking skills so you can yeah. follow an individual deer around and see where it's see where it's going. Yeah, I could I could try to do that. That would take a little bit more time. It that is that is most most assuredly true. I'm, I imagine. Have, so, are you? You've mainly set them in valley bottoms, or have you also done sort of yeah, hill slopes? And I've, for the most part, set them in valley bottoms. I will, if I get more, I'll probably try to. I set one at the base of a hill one time, just to see, just to see how the deer activity was versus the valley bottom. Um, but that camera was malfunctioning, so it did not. It was not. Did not get the information I wanted out of it. Mm. I mean, I got deer videos up there. Um, and the deer activity was different up there than it was in the valley bottom, which was interesting. But um, it did not run as long like I wanted it to. Yeah, there's a couple of sorts of things that I think might be interesting to to look for. And that's, you, you know, you when you're going up and down the hills, you often find those places if it's a steep section where there's a, like... All, there's not a lot of super obvious trail and then everything sort of funnels into one little narrow location and that looks like it gets a lot of traffic. Um, relatively speaking, it's always a little hard to know how much exactly uh, is moving through there without having some sort of a trail cam to, to measure it. Um, but that would be an interesting place, one of those sort of choke points on the on the steep hill slopes. Seems yeah. like it could be interesting. I don't know how often there's convenient trees uh, yeah, I, I think know. often there probably is but and then the other one that is sort of um would be interesting to me is is i guess these places i don't necessarily think of as being up in the valleys quite as much but there are places where there's sort of south facing um south facing areas that i think that uh, the deer uses as beds yeah. For, and and there's probably bedding areas up up in the valley too, but uh ones that I remember being most obvious tended to be where there'd be a, sun would be able to shine through and and like all the berry bushes are are browsed down right in the immediate vicinity and there's kind of this 
spot where it looks like they lay pretty regularly. But honestly, I have no idea if that's like three times a year or, or yeah, you know, know, three times a week that they're doing that. So it could be interesting to have a trail cam just to see. I, I don't, I, I, yeah, just to see what they're they're doing. Have you ever tried targeting a deer bed? No, I've never. Like, I don't. If I had more cameras, I'd do that more. But I'm trying to stick my, the cameras that I have in a better into more high traffic areas um but i have thought about that because i have noticed deer beds and stuff in places and wondered if they used them very regularly or if they like used them every day and just i bumped them out of there when i was going up the hill to look or if um or if they just don't use them that frequently and so and they use them like once a week or something and they move beds around but mm. Well, lots of lots of mysteries still, I suppose, uh, <laughs> to try and figure out with with the uh, advantage of trail cams. And are, are do you have your videos uh, a place where folks can see them if they're interested? Yeah, I put a few of them on YouTube, but not. So, how can people find your videos there? Um, I got Sitka Trail Camera Channel. Um, so your your uh, channel name on YouTube is Sitka Trail Cams, or yeah, and something like that. Something like no. that. So if you search for that, then yeah, you should be able to find it. And I'll put a link when I post this on my site. I'll put a link to the to to that channel on YouTube, and you have a few videos from the last couple of years or so. Yeah, I I put some up from um, quite a while ago I had some set up in a different place uh, several years ago and I put some up old ones up from there but most of them are from within the last couple years so one of the other things I know we've talked about in the past and maybe we get an update on is is birds and birding it seems to be your your kind of your long time uh, pursuit uh, since since you were little and um, any updates on your on your birding adventures? Uh, yeah, I've got it to where I only have one regularly occurring bird here that I need to still go get, which is a sooty grouse. I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to let myself count it if I hear it or if I have to go f- see one. If I have to see one, it's going to be tricky probably. Um, but I was able to get a short-eared owl last year, and I got a thick-billed myrrh last week, so it was... Nice to get those. Those were the only other two that I that showed up regularly that I don't have or didn't have at that time. And so, what other what other highlights from from the past year? Mm, there was a rough that showed up out at Totem Park, which was fun to go see. Um, I got to go on a pelagic trip off um, cruise off and got to go see albatross and. I gotta go see one species of albatross, black-footed albatross, which is by far the most common one out there. Um, and then I gotta get fulmers and some other pelagic birds that I wasn't sure I was gonna get. Um, and then I just got, and then I just got the, the random ones that just showed up in town from time to time. The random ones. The random ones. I can't remember. I got a. I got 10 new species I got to add to my list last year, but I can't quite remember what all 10 of them are. Oh, gray, gray catbird was a nice one to see. Um, so the rough and the gray catbird. And then I see that's only six. And a lesser black back gull. Yeah, a lesser black back gull, that's right. And a yellow-headed blackbird. And a yellow-headed blackbird. Um, 
And you you also accomplished one of your goals of getting your sister over yeah. 200 species. I managed to get my sister over 200 species. She got her patch the other day. So she is now an Alaska 200 member? Yep, Alaska you, 200 member. No, you may be the only sibling pair on the on that list. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Wouldn't surprise me if there's some others, but... Um, well, yeah, the pelagic trip was was what did you um what were highlights from that for you? I mean, you saw the new birds, but what did you anything surprising that you learned having been out there? I guess I guess uh, you'd probably been out off. I mean, we we didn't end up I wouldn't say we were off of Kruzov. Um, wow. we went we ended up going well south of Kruzov and and really were about due west of Bjorka mm. <laughs> by the end of the by the so end of our, I just remember we went out by cruise off and yeah. just well, <laughs> we the thought going. was that that was one of the interesting things to me was that it felt like and and if you'd asked me, I would have said that we were going west of of Cape Edgecombe and so pretty much off of cruise off, um, and that's where the continental shelf approaches the closest is just there. But it was a foggy day in town and in the sound, and when we went out there. Um, it was, uh, we got out into the sun, we got out past the fog, it was just a marine layer. But the way that the chart was set up on the boat we were on was that it always, it, the whole chart rotated, so mm. it was always, up was the direction we were going. And I'm used to reading maps and charts so that uh, up is always north. I, I tend to keep them. And so then it's easy to tell which direction you're going. So when I would glance at the chart, up was always the direction we were going. So that was not as informative to me, especially when we got out there away from land. And you couldn't see the land because of the marine layer in, in closer and the fog in closer. And, but if you'd asked me, and, and what I actually thought was we were heading west and maybe actually a trending a little bit north. And so when I got home and looked at my track that I'd recorded with GPS, and I saw it going basically straight southwest from from Lazaria, essentially, when we went by Lazaria and then and then a little further out, and then we're basically heading southwest. I was like, oh, the track must be like that was my first thought. The track must be wrong. And then I was like, no, if you're ever saying the map or the track is wrong, then <laughs> that's, that's not it. That's that that's saying something about me, not not the map or the track. So uh, it was it was an interesting bit of disorientation there. But we did end up yeah going out pretty far uh, and ended up due west, like I say, of um, Bjorka, and, and making it to the shelf break, the it, it dropped off. I think it the depth sounder got to like 2,500 feet or something like that. So it was... Yeah, it seemed like I heard there. that it like bottomed out, like it didn't... Yeah, it may have gone deeper than it was. I, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I was more focused on looking at birds at that time. So yeah. what did you... So what are some of the th- things that, that sort of stood out to you from, from making that trip? Um, that without navigational stuff, driving a boat in the fog, heavy fog can be a little, um, dangerous and difficult at times. There was times where I was sitting out on the bow when we were heading out, um, and we would go through the marine layer, like you said, and I just would look around and I could not tell where I was. I could not see any islands. I could see maybe 30 feet and that was it. It's like, I couldn't see Like I couldn't tell where cruise off was. I mean... I presumed based on that it didn't feel like we changed directions, cruise off was probably to my right, but I didn't know that for sure. And so it was like all the islands that I normally use as cues to figure out where I am. It's like I couldn't see any of them. And it was like, man, if we didn't have GPSs and things like that, I wouldn't know where we were. 
Yeah, it's an interesting way, ways to navigate and, and keep one's sense of direction. I imagine folks that spend a lot of time on the water uh, and for whom that is a critical skill in the, in the old days had, had uh, techniques for yeah. maintaining course, I guess compasses in particular. But uh, even on, on land, you know, it's because of topo- topography uh, channels the way that we move a lot, lot more um, than it might in some more open places. I don't notice it as much here, but I have occasionally had experiences where I ended up like making a half circle without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a slow, a slow change of direction and you yeah. feel like you're going straight. And the same thing, I guess, can happen in a boat uh, where you feel like you're going straight, but it's just a, a broad circle where you're. Yeah, I had that happen to me hunting one time where I was just following a set of deer tracks in the snow, and I wasn't really looking to where I was going. I'm like, oh, I should be reaching. And then I reached a river. I'm like, that's the wrong river. I'm like, that's not that's not the one, and the river's going the wrong way. It's not it's not supposed to be going that way. I'm like, oh, I did a half circle around without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, it's a little, yeah, unsettling when that happens in my experience. You get there, and you're like, uh, what? Because <laughs> um, it's easy to just sort of take for granted that you always know what know what direction you're you're going in. Yeah. So the um, other other things that you did last summer, I know. What well, it sounds like you worked a lot. Yeah, and I that got you up bit. early. Yeah, and got me up early. And um, I seem to recall you telling me you saw a bear or two. Oh yeah, that's right. I I did see. I think my total was twenty one or twenty two. All, all different bears, do you think? Or uh, I think there was some overlap some of the time, but I would say there was probably at least 15 different ones. 15 different bears? And yeah. were you, I mean, I guess some of the time maybe you were going out looking for them. Yeah, a couple times I, I found a spot where I could just sit in the car and watch them, but in the morning. And so I do that, but a couple times. But and then there was just other times I was coming down Indian River one time and one just came walking out for some reason i had the bright idea that it was like oh it's seven thirty-eight in the morning there's not gonna be a bear out on the trail so i wasn't really paying that close attention and then i heard a huff and a crash through the woods and i looked up and about eh, 15 feet away there was a bear taken off into the trees i was like dang it i was like what were you thinking all the bears you've ran into up indian river have been seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> but so that one gave you a little bit of a charge? Yeah, that one didn't charge me, but it no, I mean, gave me an adrenaline rush. Yeah, it gave, gave sure. you a little bit of a charge, yeah. not that it charged you. Yeah, I suppose I should be careful with my language when we're talking about bears and charges. <laughs> yeah, but it just ran away. All of them, didn't. none of them bothered me ever. Um, all of them. I was either sitting up on the road bridge of Indian River watching them fish in the river or walking up, running up the river, or they just would run and be... They wouldn't bother me any. So is that something that uh, you would prefer to see fewer bears or didn't care? Or? Um, I thought it was interesting when I was a safe distance away up on top of the Indian River Road Bridge and they were walking down in the river. Um, I thought it was a little less interesting when I was uh, way close to them. Um, that even though I had bear spray when I was up there, it would not have done me any good had that bear decided it wanted to get me. You wouldn't have had time to do it. I wouldn't have had time to get it. If I had realized it was coming out before it made a noise, I might have had time. But mm. by the time I would have heard the noise, the bear would have been on me pretty much. Or I would have not. I would have had time to just reach. Um, but I did not. I would not have had time to 
actually deploy it, which... I guess that's a good reminder. Yeah, good reminder to <laughs> keep aware of your surroundings out there. Never assume that just because it's a certain time of day that a bear's not going to be out, especially if it's in the morning. Yeah, I think I, I think when you were younger, I used to ask you, what's the number one rule? Pay attention. Pay attention. So maybe maybe there's a reason for that being the number one rule. <laughs> yeah, potentially. <laughs> um, yeah, for whatever reason, I guess par- maybe partly because I'm not an early riser, but um, uh, not typically an early riser. Sometimes I am, but I have ran into relatively few bears in my excursions out and about. But I also tend not to go uh, along the rivers when it's salmon yeah. season, and I think that makes a difference. It seems like that's probably when you saw most of them was along the rivers during salmon season. Yeah, that's actually, I didn't see any away from the river this year. Well, that's not true. I saw one running across Indian River Road one time when I was walking on the sidewalk. Um, but still in the vicinity. But of still the, in the vicinity of Indian River, yeah. yeah. I didn't see any away from the river. Yeah, They were either in the park, or they were running up under the road bridge, or they were just some stretch along the river. Yeah, it was... Uh, an interesting year for bears in town last year. I spoke with somebody um, recently that lives out by Halbert Point Rec, and and they said that they didn't have any bears in there. Precisely, there were bears around, and there were bears all over town. But for whatever reason, they didn't bother their neighborhood. Whereas in the past, they'd bo- bothered their little neighborhood, and um, so it was just kind of interesting the way that worked. But yeah, it seemed like it was uh, kind of a big year for bears in town for whatever reason, and um, hard to say if that was. Partly why you saw so many. I mean, obviously, you're, the fact that you were up and moving around in the in the early hours probably yeah. was a contributing factor as well. Seems like that's when you saw a lot of them. Yep, I saw all of them in the early-ish morning. It was like 6, 7, 8 o'clock. That's when I saw them. I didn't see anything. Did I see any later? I don't think I saw any later than that. So another... Um, Outing that, well, I was a participant on was a, a hike up Bear Mountain, um, which I believe was your first time ever. You, you've gone up, it was your first time ever the route that we took, which yeah. was coming from the Silver Bay side. It was the first time ever doing the loop. And yeah, we did that as a loop. Um, what were your, what any any highlights from that adventure? I got to see goats really close. Got to see goats and kids. And, well, I got to see one goat with a kid close. Um, and then it was... I think I got a couple new species up there, plants, when I went up. I don't remember for sure now, but yeah, yeah, I did. I got a new fern at the very least. Um, but I got to watch red tails fly around up there and got to see the eagles and the ravens. And I just got to go up pole 41, which was fun. I hadn't gotten to do that before. Oh, and got to see a lot of great crowned rosy finches. South Lock, like 50 of them, it seemed like. Or was it 60? I don't remember. Um, I believe I counted 70 in my pictures. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah, the goats were interesting because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we were trying to get close to goats. It's Mm-mm. just they happened to be where we were going. You know, the only <laughs> – there's a limited amount of space that, that I can navigate on that on that ridge. Yeah. And uh, they they were in front of us. Um, and given the, the nature of the visibility there, they – we're not able, neither of us could see each other until we were fairly close. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was interesting to me how fast that they disappeared. Uh, and they would just drop, you know, basically when they saw us, they would just, they didn't run. They just kind of turned around and walked away and then disappeared around a corner. And you go up to the corner because that's where we had to go and mm-hmm. look. And there was no sign of any goat whatsoever. And there's no place to go, but like it looked, I mean, it wasn't literally straight down, but it was 
a lot steeper than I would have been comfortable traveling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've watched them. I didn't watch some of them just just drop right off the side of the hill and just go right down over the edge like it was nothing. I was like, man, if I could do that, there'd be all kinds of places I could go. That is that is true. I'd, not all the goats survive some of their ventures uh, down those, I think, but um, but they do remarkably well. And it was interesting. Another one, another. There was a set of three that were feeding on a talus field that were pretty far away, um, but we could see them. And then and then a little later, and I hadn't been watching the whole time because we were traveling. Uh, they were up on the cliff above that in places that you're like, wow, that would have been interesting to see them like somehow get up there. Yeah. Um, but they seem to be not having any trouble with it, which I guess is, that's what mountain goats do. So that was kind of a, a fun one, but you're mentioned, you got new species of plants. And so I guess that is a, a segue into your iNaturalist quests. Um, what's your, your current, uh, you know, species, species, uh, counts and, and, um, questing, I currently have two species, not unique taxa, um, 1,232, I believe, if I remember Is that correctly. for Sitka? Or yeah, for, for Sitka. Because I know you have some from, from other places, mostly yeah. in the lower 48 at this point. Yeah, for like all of North America, I only have like 1,600 and some, but most of those being birds. I Up until this last year, the year before, I didn't really too, do too much stuff other than birds. And it happens to be that the last couple of years, the time I've been going down south is not optimal for plants, for flowering plants. It's been like in October, so a lot of the flowering plants have died back and and stuff. But yeah, so I got 1,232 for Sitka or southeast area. Since if you look for the Sitka map, you miss four birds that I got offshore. Um, but so for... Well, no, I guess it would be 1,232 for Sitka and then 1,236 for Southeast. Um, So I got some of those, and I'd like to get up to 1,500 this year, but I'm not sure. We'll see how that goes. So your goal is to get almost 300 more species for, is that for Sitka or for Gen... uh, Uh, For Sitka. Yeah. I'll get for Sitka. Or for Southeast. I'll do Southeast in case I go someplace else in Southeast I don't expect to go this year. So Southeast Alaska, you have a goal of getting to 1,500 total species, mm-hmm. and you're not going to get that with birds nope. pretty clearly. I mean, there's there's definitely some birds you could get in Southeast Alaska, but... Not unless we have an exceptional, exceptional vagrant year. Uh, I mean, exceptional vagrant year. You're, yeah, you're not going to get 300 species. There's not been 300 species reported in the state in the last 10 years, probably, that you don't have, so... Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> um, assuredly true. So what are the what are you, you know, when you expand your your vision beyond the the birds? What is it that you're uh, focusing on? Intertidal mostly right now because everything else has pretty much died back. Um, I've got more plants I could get, um, so I may try to get out and get some of those fishes, rockfish. I wanted to try to get. Um, I think I set myself a goal of. 30 rockfish species or was it 35 i think it was 30 rockfish species um how many of those have you seen so far i think i haven't checked but i think it's only like 10 or 15 i think it's only 10 so you're maybe a third of the way to yeah. your to your target some of those are going to be difficult to get because um, some of them are either 
I might get lucky and be able to get some of the really deep water ones and some deep holes in the sound, like Silver Bay. I was looking at a chart, and I didn't realize that there's parts of, like, after the channel that Silver Bay comes out of and feeds into, there's holes that'll drop to, like, five or 600 feet out in the sound next to islands and stuff, which I didn't realize. And then the, and then there's the trench out by out between Cruzoff and Cassiana. Um, so I might get lucky and be able to get some of the really deep water ones in some of those deep water spots without having to go offshore. Um, but then there's just some that are like the blue rockfish. You just, it's been reported for the state, but I guess it's um, rare, really rare. And so that one will be, I'll be lucky to get that one. Do you happen to remember off the top of your head how many species are known from Southeast? From Southeast, I'm not entirely sure. From the state, there's about 40. And I think there's only like 35 from Southeast or something. So you're not quite targeting all of them. No, not quite all of them. I wanted to give myself a little cushion. (laughs) So your your process for trying to find these there, I guess in some ways maybe you're taking a little bit of an approach like you've done with birds, although birds are clearly a little easier to observe than Mm -hmm. fish, uh, in that you have some resources that you're looking at. Yeah. And identifying what's possible even or or plausible, shall mm-hmm. we say, because uh, I guess fish could be vagrant as well. But, yeah. Um, they've got, um, I think they've caught, it wasn't a tuna, but it was, well, maybe it was a tuna. Yeah, there's been a number. Of, some, some fish move around a lot more than others. I yeah. guess I don't know how much rockfish move around. Yeah, it, non-pelagic rockfish, which are basically like the china rockfish, the copper rockfish, the quillbacks. The stuff you catch when you're like halibut fishing, those don't move around very much. But pelagic rockfish like the duskies, the willow, no, the dusky, the widow, yellowtail, the black rockfish, and then the blue rockfish, those move around more, I think. So you're learning a little bit about their life history and and using that information to pick places to try fishing? Uh, yeah, some. I mostly just try to find rocky spots. <laughs> Find rocky spots. Find and drop rocky a line. spots and drop a line and see, see, see what I can catch. Up. I suppose that works when you don't have very many, and yep. then as you as you narrow your your uh, targets down, then maybe you have to get a little more, a little more precise. Yeah, yeah, specific. Um, and but, how is the identification of rockfish? They pretty straightforward. Depends on the rockfish. Like a lot of things, some of them are very straightforward, and some of them are not very straightforward. There was. Dusky rockfish, there's two kinds of dusky rockfish, like the plagics, um, which are in the plagics, um, that they look similar to black rockfish. Um, and I happened to be out fishing one time, and we got a dusky rockfish. Didn't know for sure that it was the dusky rockfish, but we brought it home to eat it, and that was when we realized that it was a dusky um, and we had to count the vertebrae. It had 28 vertebrae, which meant that that was a dusky and not a blue, black rockfish. Um, but now they split the duskies, and so there's two duskies. And I think they're they're difficult, but I think there's uh, they can be done. It can be done. I think some of them you just look for. I think the other one you just look for no white on it, and it's a mm. form of dusky. So there, there's some good resources, though, for rockfish ID? Uh, yeah, I found a few. Decent ones. Uh, any particular recommendations on those? Um, I don't remember the names. So, does Alaska Department of Fish and Game have a 
they have they have a they have fish charts. Um, not I don't think they're complete, but I think they they get most of the species. They'll get yeah, they'll get you a few of the species. They'll get you all the pelagics because the regulation for pelagics and non-pelagics are different, and so they'll get you all the pelagics so you know what the pelagics are, and then they'll get you uh, quite a few of the non-pelagics. Um, so you know what those are, and but they don't. It's not. A, it, there's a part in the regulations that says if it's not listed in the pelagics, assume it's non-pelagic, and mm. so it's they don't list all the rockfish. So I imagine that you're doing a, a mix of of. You mentioned you brought one home to eat, but yeah, <laughs> mi- mi- mix of catch and release, and, yeah, and the, um, and bring home for food. Yeah, the non-pelagics, I pretty much toss all of them back since you can't hardly keep any of them anymore. And some of them you can't keep at all. Well, any any things that you're looking forward to doing in the next in the in the coming coming year? Going to low tide. Going to low tide. What are your targets at low tide? Shrimp. I want to go get more shrimp. Shrimp species. And, and not um, to eat. yeah, I suppose I suppose many people think of shrimp from the ocean. They think mm, food, but um, yeah, you need a lot of the shrimp that I'm looking for to make anywhere close to a meal. Yeah, I'm not sure if you, I mean, I guess you could eat them, but it seems like they're mostly shell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You would not be tailing them. You'd be taking the head off and then you'd be just eating the tail hole pretty much. Yeah. So what kind of shrimp are you, uh, have you, have you been finding and, and what kind of shrimp are you targeting? Um, I'm targeting the small shrimp. Um, I can't remember the genus for them. Or the genuses, because there's several. But I'm targeting the smaller um, intertidal, shallow subtidal species. Um, I'm also targeting the sand shrimp, um, not the mud shrimp, but the but there's a shrimp that just will bury themselves in the sand and then, but on the sand surface. And so I, I've got a couple of those I don't have yet. Um, but most of but I've got mostly most of the ones I still need are the small can be difficult to ID species that yeah so there's a family of shrimp those small shrimp in Thoridae is the name of the family mm-hmm. and I think um, heptocarpus is a lot of the a lot of the ones are in yeah. that genus and then there's also another genus or two that is in that family I think that at least one of the other uh, one that there's species in at least one of those other other ones from that family so how are you you're again looking in in guides mm-hmm. to see what you should be able to find, but yeah. you haven't so far. Yeah, I'm looking at guys to see what I should be able to find, and then I have discussions on iNaturalist with people that know what they're doing um, to figure out exactly. I discovered there's a lot of variation within um, the length of, like one of the ways you tell some of the shrimp apart is the rost- length of the rostrum, which is a little scale that comes off the... So it's a pointy bit at the front? Yeah, it's the, it's the pointy bit at the front. Um, yeah. And uh, that needs to be longer than the carapace, which is the main body of the the main shell, like where the like all the organs sit underneath, pretty much. And so it needs to be longer than that, and, it's, and for one species to differentiate from the others. And apparently, within the one species, that the most common species I've been finding, there's a lot of variation, a lot of variation within that length, um, which has proved to be kind of annoying because it's like, all right, I've got one that's long enough. But it still shows the red bands, which suggests it's this other species. And so it's like, and the book says, obviously longer than the carapace. I'm like, well, obvious for who? Somebody that 
has looked at hundreds and hundreds of them or somebody that just is pulling one out of the water for the first time? Yeah, I've noticed over the years um, the challenge of knowing that there is something around that could be similar, but not knowing when I see it. So you keep looking for it and not really knowing the full having never seen it. And then when I see it, it is obviously different. Yeah. Not 100% of the time, but often it's like, oh, okay. And then once you know, then you know, mm-hmm. and it's pretty straightforward. But until you find that first one, you know, you're, you're looking at, at the variation within one species and you're, and you're like, well, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. Nope. One nope. looks right. This one looks right. now. And so, yeah, it'd be interesting. I guess, I guess time will tell if you're able to find this other one that is, has it been reported here specifically before? Or? Yeah, it says that it's, um, or it's, I think it said it was from like Sheep Island. Um, I think that, or yeah. I, I don't know where that is. I don't know where that is either. It's in Alaska somewhere, but. Oh, so uh, maybe south of here, It potentially. It possibly, but I don't think so. Because I think there was others reported from that area that were here. So I have to go back and look in the book and figure out exactly where that is, but. Yeah, I mean, and it, things do move around, and, and intertidal things have not been super well sampled. So, yeah. So you never know. But, yeah, sometimes sometimes you end up looking extensively for things that <clears throat> maybe maybe aren't here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but getting to know the variation, it's like I heard one person, or I was reading about goal identification, which, of course, is a, a challenge for many, and um, when... Uh, you know, often you'll be looking in flocks and in in back east is looking in flocks of ring build goals for mu goals. And here it's the other, you know, mm-hmm. we have the, well, short build goals now, but, um, yeah. and, and a ring build goal might show up. And, and he said, well, study your local birds. So you really get to know the full variation of them. And then when something different shows up, it's a lot more likely to stick out as unusual because you're so sort of well acquainted with the local species. And I imagine that's kind of works with it, uh, other other organisms as well. In this mm-hmm. case, you know, you're talking about shrimp, but but also uh, fish, you know, sculpins or rockfish or mm-hmm. any of those that there's this uh, process of just getting to know. Uh, and this time of year, your uh, low tides are kind of getting you out at, at night. Yeah, after dark. Well, Sorry. I guess it's not really all that late, but yeah, after yeah. dark. Um, so I can just take a headlamp and a spotlight down there and go and don my boots and rain pants and raincoat and rubber gloves and go. And a net. And a net, yep. I, I guess sure for I the, yeah. So in the past, you, you've you mostly looked for things by turning over rocks yeah. and that sort of thing. Flipped over a lot of rocks. And never, and so some of these species, that's just not the habitat for yeah, them. Yeah, some that? of these you're just not going to find under rocks. Like I've seen quite a few of these species just in little tidal pools. So recently, when you've been looking over recent recent low tides mm-hmm. as and started focusing on these, um, you've you've looked in you've been finding them in the tide pools and, mm-hmm. and it, at the lowest tides or um, like they were negative tides when, or they were close to negative tides when I was down there a lot of the time they were like zero point zero five or zero point one or so not. I mean, yeah, that, we don't generally consider those uh, an especially low tide. Here, yeah, and then and but some of them will be like zero, will be like negative zero point five or something of the sort, and then it has to do with the pressure, atmospheric pressure, but um, whether or not they're and are they at that tide level or are they above that? Uh, some of them are above, some of them are at. 
um, at the park, there's nice big tidal pools, so I just go wait around in the big tidal pools and <laughs> with my net and try not to get stuck in the mud. Yeah, there is some soft mud there. Yeah, I try to. I've figured out some of those areas where it's soft mud, and so I try to stick out of the soft mud. I've just about sat down in the water a couple times, though, because when I try to step back out of the mud, my mud's got in my boot, and so then I can't. Like my body weight's transitioning to step back, but it can't step back because my foot's stuck, and I have to get my foot unstuck. And I mean, to remember to move your foot before you shift your weight. Yeah, I need to move my foot up before I shift my weight. Yeah, that is um, awkward uh, <laughs> at times, or it can be, and yeah. and cold and wet. So, any other any other um, things that you have planned for the coming year? Mm, I probably try to get on a few more hikes. Get out fishing more. Going to Adak in the spring. So what's what's Adak? Uh, it's an island in the Aleutian chain. Um, that's can be good birding, and it's got even birds that breed there that I don't have. So for the state, so I get a make a trip there and swing by Anchorage and go birding in Adak for a week and come back. It's so, also known for its caribou hunting. But not going for caribou? But not going for caribou this time, no. So the, the birding in Adak, I didn't, I, I knew that Adak was the furthest south town in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, what I hadn't realized is how close it was to the 180th longitude. Um, so it is one of the furthest, I mean, arguably it's, it's it might be the furthest uh West town in the United States as well. I can't remember, but it's it's close. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's uh, because the other direction. You, once you cross over that, then you're coming from the east, and so you get this technicality that the things beyond that are further east. Oh, uh-huh. and so yes, it's shorter to go west uh, from Adak to those places than it is to go east. But it's one of those uh, technicalities that Alaska has the the furthest east and the furthest north and the furthest west uh, points, but not the furthest south. No. So Adak. And it's so it's far enough over there that you're there's there's some different species, but um, that are just there regularly mm-hmm. uh, nesting. But then there's also a, a greater chance of Asian vagrants. Is that yeah. kind of the yeah? You get a better chance of Asian vagrants over there. That's um, the dream. That's so, the dream. So in one trip, you're going to uh, add some species to your list. But if the, everything goes according to plan, yes, these will be the first species that you don't have in Sitka yep. for birds. Yep, for birds, well, for anything that's... The first species that's in the state of Alaska that I don't have in Sitka. Everything else is in Sitka. I guess, yeah, you haven't done a lot of traveling in the state. So is, is that something that you're hoping to do more of? Yeah, in the coming years. Um, yeah. Not necessarily this year, but in the coming years, I hope to travel in the state more. Any particular places that are... Um, I want to go to Gamble, Nome, float the Stikine... Basically, places that can add me more birds that I don't have that, like, go try to find the places that's got the best amount of birds that I don't have, which, through some looking, I discovered there's, like, even the good places only have, like, 12 species that occur regularly that I don't have, which is unfortunate, but it's the way it goes in this, when you have aren't over 200 already and the state's only got... 500 and some, and 500 and some of quite a few of those are vagrants. Yeah, it is uh, interesting. I guess your your 
primary targets are birds. And when you run out of those, then you start to expand into other, yeah, other organisms. Pretty much. Is that kind of how that works? Pretty much. So, I mean, when I go to ADAC, I will look for, I will, if there's a flower that's blooming, I'll take a picture of it. If there's plants that I don't recognize, I'll take a picture of it. If the tide's low and I happen to be out on the beach and there's a clam or something that I see, I'll take a picture of it too. But I'm primarily going for birds, and so that is that will be my primary focus. But if the birding is slow, then I will <laughs> look at other things as well as I go. Have you looked at the tide um, sequence in, in ADAC? Not recently. I, I mean, I looked at it when we were initially talking about the trip, but I think it's close to low tide. I think there will be some daytime low tides that, while we're there, but I don't. No well, how much sure. how much tide variation does ADAC have? Do you know? A, g- a good low tide there it looked like was about negative two. Hmm. Was a good low tide. I know some places in the state have very low um, tidal variation, so the mm-hmm. the whole s- month long sequence of tide variation may only be a couple of feet. Mm. So I don't know if ADAC is one of those places or yeah, not. Yeah, I but. think it's got a little more variation than that, but I don't think it necessarily has very much. Yeah, and of course, then on the other hand, there are other places that have, you know, I think our over the course of a year, our tide variation here is about 16 feet, uh, you know, 14 to 16 feet, depending on the year. And there are other places that have, I think, 20 to 30 feet uh, of tide variation. I can't even imagine living in a place that's got 20 to 30 feet of variation in tide. Yeah, uh, Juno has more than we do. Typically, when uh, you go up the up the bays and fjords, the tidal variation gets higher. Uh, so okay. uh, even... Catchmack Bay has a higher tide tide range. Uh, I think Anchorage Anchorage may be one of the highest tide ranges. Uh, not Anchorage specifically, but like Kinnick Arm and, and up in there, Turnigan Arm. I can't remember exactly where it is, but Upper Cook Inlet has mm-hmm. some big tide ranges. Uh, and I don't know that there's a lot of intertidal stuff to, mm. to do there. It's pretty muddy in a lot of the Go places. Go look for all the shrimp that hang out in the mud. Uh, and the problem, in part, also is that some of those places have mud you can get stuck in, Ooh, and then yeah, the tide comes back in pretty fast. So that is a little problematic. Glacial glacial sediment settling out, and and that I I don't know though. I'm not super familiar with that that area. So, well, as we are kind of getting close to the end here, anything that you want to say before we wrap up? Mm, no, that's about it. All right. Well, thanks for coming in and visiting, and and I'm. Sure, we'll look forward to, to maybe checking in again in a few months or a year and see see what you've discovered in the meantime, what mm-hmm. adventures you've got onto. Well, thanks for joining me. Yep. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded yesterday with Connor Goff. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. You can find recordings of this show and others in the archive at sitkanature.org slash raven. I'll be posting this show there soon. And in the meantime, if you'd be interested in seeing some of the videos that Connor spoke about in the first half of the show, his trail cam videos, you can just search for Sitka Trail Cams on YouTube and that should pop up his channel. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.